When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We can't stop here. This is bat country. God damn, I never rode in a convertible before. Is that right? Well, I guess you're about ready then, aren't you? We're your friends. We're not like the others, man. Really? No more of that talk or I'll put the fucking leashes on you, understand? Get in. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Over Under Movies, where we pick one overrated and one underrated movie in the same genre, style, tone, of, uh, or however we may see fit. I am Octay Ege Kozak. I am Eric McClanahan. And I'm Ryan Oliver. Yeah, so we have some interesting news for you guys. Uh, we've recently switched over to the playlist, and we're really excited about that. And the playlist is also about to switch over to its own website, since uh, IndieWire's acquisition by another company. Uh, what's the name of the company, Eric? Penske Media. Penske Media. So IndieWire's acqu- acquisition by Penske Media, they dropped out all of their blogs. So starting on Monday, the playlist is going to be... You can find the playlist at theplaylist.net so that's going to be the new website and we are going to be on it uh, from from that from that point on so uh, update your bookmarks and uh, yeah you can you can keep following us there and of course uh, the the episodes are going to be posted a couple days after they are posted on the playlist uh, they're going to be on our regular um, iTunes feed uh, until we kind of finish phasing things out so uh, in this episode, uh, which I'm calling um, Let's Get Fucked Up and Get Lost in the Desert, <laughs> uh, we are talking about two kind of fever, dream, fever, nightmarish films about alcoholism and, and addiction and people just basically going on these, these insane journeys. Substance abuse. Substance <laughs> abuse movies. Yeah, exactly. That's the, that's the more like traditional way of looking at it. Uh, so we have, uh, and these are Ryan's choices, by the way, and Ryan chose the Cult 1975, uh, I don't know if it's, I guess it's somewhere between an exploitation movie and a Australian New Age uh, movie, well, I guess mm. we'll get into that. Uh, it's called Wake and Fright, uh, directed by Ted Kotcheff. Uh but before we get to that, we are going to dive into our overrated movie, Ryan's pick for the overrated film, which is uh, Terry Gilliam's 1998 adaptation of Hunter S. Thompson's uh, gonzo journalism quote-unquote masterpiece considered by some uh, i guess uh fear and loathing in las vegas so uh without further ado ryan why'd you pick fear and loathing as your overrated this will be uh, very therapeutic for me because i felt very alone um in, in my circle of friends and like my film friends 
growing up, uh, you know, high school and college and all that, because I am one of the few people I know in my, you know, small secular world who doesn't like this movie. And, and when it came out, I mean, if you go, you know, like to Rotten Tomatoes, it's got a 49% rating by critics. Yeah, it's got a 49 Metacritic. It, it got pretty mixed reviews upon its release, but it's one of those movies that I feel people, uh, especially a certain kind of audience, hold in such high esteem now. Like, they look back on it as a classic movie, even though it got mixed reception, uh, which is plus, exactly... Plus, there's the, the Criterion Collection seal of approval as well, you know? Yes, it does. That, it that means so, something. So, so does Armageddon, so... Well, right. okay, but sure. <laughs> but but it's still it does mean something. You're yeah, you're right. It still means something. And and this is what Gilliam wanted too when he made this movie. He wanted to make a movie that was mo uh I believe the quote was I wanted to be seen as one of the all-time greatest movies and one of the all-time most hated movies. And I guess by that rationale he has succeeded, but I guess for me, I've always felt this movie, I don't think it's good enough or, or provocative enough in what it's trying to say to warrant hate, I guess. Like, I, I don't think this movie should necessarily be hated or loved, and I don't want to, you know, tell people what they should feel about a movie. But I don't, I've never really thought this movie had a very particular point of view on the things. Like, it's got a, a lot of ideas, sure, and it's about this crazy drug fueled trip that starts at 11 and goes from there and it, it's like it, it's like when you're across the street from a crosswalk and you could see the bus that you need to be on on the other side of the street it takes off and you're still on the other side of the street and that's kind of how <laughs> i feel when this movie starts because it just goes full bore and i've just never really been on board it and mm -hmm. i i think um you know doing my research actually like really helped me unpack a little bit because you know we love we, we love movies. We're cinephiles. We love talking about movies. We also love hearing about how things got made and connecting the dots or, or, or you know, coming up with tinfoil hat theories about how a movie got made. And I've always assumed because this movie was made over at Universal, I always assumed that this was Gilliam's like passion project, that it was his one for him mm -hmm. movie he got to make after 12 Monkeys was such a uh, critical and commercial success for him. Uh, I think his most successful film commercially anyway. And so I always thought this was his his passion project. And come to find out, it really wasn't. He was just kind of, I know Scorsese and Oliver Stone tried to get this movie made, uh, you know, since uh, I think like the early 80s and it never came to fruition. And there was this big like copyright battle and all this like crazy behind the scenes well, stuff. Well, it was supposed and I guess to be Alex Cox who, who directed uh, Repo right. Man who was supposed to make it and then he got fired with his writing partner at the last minute and that's why there's like he gets credited with the screenplay even though he didn't really have anything to do with the final product because he you know went to the WGA and asked for a credit and there was like this long battle with Gilliam with between between him and Gilliam but yeah like he got fired and then Gilliam was brought into the project as a hired hand uh and basically retooled the screenplay to uh his sensibilities and just went to work on it so it's it's it looks like it really does look like a passion project because it has all of like these bizarre, weird elements of a Gilliam film. So it was it was a good choice by the producers and the studio executives, I guess, to like jump on Gilliam as soon as Alex Cox was fired. But yeah, it's a it's a total like hired hand kind of project, just like uh, what was that, The Brothers Grimm or something like that. But it definitely <coughs> has 
his, you know, the Brothers Grimm, you watch it and you're just like, yeah, this was a hired hand, whatever, you know, it doesn't have any of his personality in it. But uh, you watch Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and it's very much like an unhinged, like totally unhinged Terry Gilliam film. It is stylistically, sure, but I also feel like watching it, it's not anything that I really haven't seen from him before and the things that it's trying to say. I mean, there's there's a fight the system element to it, of course, and and, uh, you know, all this like bizarre weirdness, as you said. But it's like I saw that that weirdness done better in 12 Monkeys or I've seen that fight Mm -hmm. the system story. He did much better in Brazil. And I don't feel because I think he tried to make something to just to push the envelope of the forum, which I respect. It's a crazy ride, like I've already mentioned, but. I, I don't feel that he takes a, a particular point of view and is able to push it to make the way that, you know, God forbid, and we've talked about this on the previous episode, but God forbid, Natural Born Killers, at least, you know, to me, I don't like that movie. Uh, like, and we, we've discussed it. You can go back and listen to it. But like, at least Oliver Stone has a message and a point. And as much as I, I reject that point in that movie, he still has it. And I feel like that mm-hmm. movie, you know, it has that that juice to make it uh, both loved and hated. And I understand that. And I guess Fear and Loathing, I think there are good sequences. I do think that Johnny Depp and Benicio Del Toro are very committed and they're really good in this yeah. movie, even though I yeah. feel like they are good. I got to give Depp credit, but I also do feel that this was a sign of bad things to come from Depp. <laughs> yes, uh, because the this the definitely... End. The beginning of the end. It morphed into his Jack Sparrow uh, performance, which became pretty much everything he's done uh, since Pirates of the Caribbean. But ultimately, like I think there are good things in it. But I just kept thinking of, you know, better movies. Like, like for example, I, I kept thinking, even though it's a movie that just came out not that long ago and it came out way after this, I kept Inherent Vice came to mind a lot yeah. uh, while mm-hmm. watching this movie. Yeah. You know, definitely same set in the same year it has a drug adult protagonist both of them are, are sort of clinging on to their last bits of the american dream what they believe is the american dream which is not so subtly done in this movie as uh, ralph duke <laughs> has an american flag with him the entire movie as he's like literally clinging on to it mm-hmm. and the doc sportello character in inherent vice is, is that way too but because they are both realizing that the end of the hippie era is, is there, is there a are a lot of like very on the nose voiceover segments as if like they made the film without any kind of a thematic through line and just like inserted those voiceovers in there from the book just to basically say like oh this is a movie about something like it's about it's not just a just these two like assholes whacked out of their mind just like going from one random episodic insane encounter after the other so it it feels like kind of crammed in there i think what it is is it's it's like one for the fans like i i feel like this in a weird way that it, ryan i didn't know that uh interesting that you brought up that this was sort of a job for hire for gilliam i actually didn't know that like it does feel like a passion project like someone who adores hunter s thompson but i think mm-hmm. that was really johnny depp in this equation yeah because yeah, he had this like personal depp. relationship yeah but yeah, um, it's it is it's interesting that this is a sort of job for hire for him as a director. Yet the film does play like, isn't it weird that this came, this is a studio movie? You already brought up it's a Universal movie. Mm-hmm. Like that that alone is crazy because the spirit of it is more like 1970s studio filmmaking. So there, I sort of like appreciate it from afar. Like that this movie, I can't believe a studio put this movie out right at the time, mm-hmm. but. I do feel that uh, the job for hire thing really sticks in my mind because 
Gilliam has sort of fallen into a like honestly, I would say it's a it's I would liken him to Tim Burton with like the last decade plus of their movies, their work is like it's like they're trying to fit their their sort of recognizable auteur style onto a project. <clears throat> I think Tim Burton's more guilty of this because he's made more movies. But, you know, like put it onto a style that sounds good on paper, but like in practice lately for for both for me, for both these filmmakers, it's just like um, is grown really tiresome, and I I really don't like their work of late. I feel like Fear and Loathing is the the movie. It's that movie where he's kind of been stuck, or he's trapped himself into this style. Like he's even worked with the same DP on from this movie on, and everything on, and it's got the same sort of you know extreme. It's like everything from early it's Gilliam, but just borderline like fish fisheye lens on everybody all the time. And all yeah. the time, and it's yeah. It's you guys all, know what I'm yeah, saying. The like look of it, extremely yeah. close. Yeah, that that kind of like and, bizarre, like dreamlike, like nightmarish look of like everything is like so close and in your face, and that, that kind of framing. Um, it's it's weird to me because Twelve Monkeys is one of my, at least for me, one of my favorite Gilliam movies. And yet it's it's very mainstream. It might be the most. It's, it's, it's the one where that. he found that perfect balance between mainstream yeah. and his own specific style. And it's right, like, right. it's like such a great mystery, science, hard sci-fi story watch. But then it also has his and, like bizarre, you know, visual touches. Right. Well, and it's also a great remake of another great film, La Jetée, the Chris Marker yeah, film. That, like that, that's how that's how you make a remake. You just take the yeah, the, yeah. the main the main core of the premise and just expand, out from there. do your own thing from there. So it's like it's a really good example of a remake as well. Totally. And I wish he would have maybe he felt constrained. I don't know enough. I mean, I appreciate Gilliam, you know, and love some of his films, but maybe I just don't know. I know he has had issues on like every production and usually it's with studio people or whatever. But um, I just wonder, like, why I wish he would have taken more lessons from the, the 12 Monkeys Gilliam filmmaking than he did from Fear and Loathing. But you look at everything since and Brothers Grimm is kind of a nightmare. And like then he did Tideland, Tideland which is just this is hateful, hateful, horrendous. horrible. Oof. And I have just not liked anything since even stuff that you want to get behind, like Imaginarium of Dr. Yeah, Parnassus. But like it was not good. And like this, the last one, Zero Theorem. I just anyway, like I'm it's. It's sad to me because it's like he's one of these filmmakers that has sort of um, regressed or in, in not I, I don't like his movies anymore. But um, Fear and Loathing, while being the best example of this, like trap of style he's been in, is kind of a sad fact that that's the best example. Because well, I think it's, it's the beginning. I think of it's downfall. Got some, it's, it still has yeah. like some of the, the I, w- I don't want to say charm, but some of like the manic energy oh. and the qualities of his previous work, while starting to look like okay, he, he looks like maybe he's getting a little bit tired. He yeah, he's stuck in this rut and he doesn't know what how to get out of it. And yeah, it, it looks like stylistically, it looks like a passion project, but at the same time, you can kind of tell that it was like a hired hand kind of thing because it's it's very episodic and in, in a way that just you know to me to me this movie I have like a love hate relationship with it and. Um, more hate than love and in, in, in a lot of ways like i really appreciate that the the idea that you know what you brought up eric that this is like a this how insane this and how manic this movie is and how it's on like it's it's on 11 from minute one to the last second and how this movie could have been even released by a studio but just like we talked about with uh with the observe and report uh episode just because like an uncharacteristically dark and weird movie got released by a studio doesn't automatically, you know, you know, it's, you appreciate it, but it doesn't automatically make it good for, you know, it's still 
it's still subjective in that way. And by the way, know, guys, yeah. real quick, this was a summer release in in the yeah, when it came out. It's so it's crazy. crazy. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, it's, man. Anyway, so 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 I, I I appreciate all this. I appreciate like the uh, the dedication to this insanity from pretty much everybody involved, including Johnny Depp and Benicio del Toro specifically. Uh, but at and at the same time, it's just like it's. The, the problem is that it feels to me and has always felt to me that way from the first time I watched it when it's when it first came out this was a movie that um, I knew that it was kind of bad bad news when um, it's a major release starring Johnny Depp that didn't get released in Turkey didn't get any kind of a release I had to like basically borrow it from my uh, film theory teacher at the time and watch it that way uh, because it didn't get any it wasn't shown on tv it didn't come out on home video or anything like that so that was kind of like really bizarre but i was huh. like on a gilliam high at that point i really loved 12 monkeys i loved you know brazil was like one of my favorite movies at the time so i was just like track i was, I was just like determined to track it down and i watched it and i was just like the, the underwhelming part of it is i think is because it feels like a an entire movie made up of a series of deleted scenes yeah, uh, I, I don't know it's if you really guys like get this. I, you know, like the deleted scenes on a DVD. You know, special features you go in, and then you like it's <laughs> almost like you. There's another movie somewhere that's like that has a structure that has some kind that has highs and lows that has a certain kind of rhythm, and then this movie that we're watching, it's almost like you go into the special features menu of a Blu-ray and you hit play all on all the deleted scenes, and this is what you get. <laughs> Uh, so that, <laughs> that's, that's a good description and there's do you want to hear the meta line within the movie that pretty much describes exactly what you're saying yeah. exactly how it feels it's when when Raul Duke goes to interview the guy at the mint 400 race and they're out and the guy's driving and he looks back at Raul Duke and he says I'm going to try all different kinds of lenses and films until I find something that works in this dust yeah. and that's the movie that's the yeah. movie that's yeah that's awesome here. Yeah, he's looking for, you know, whatever, throwing everything at the wall and hoping it sticks. Um, by, by the way, MVP, and, and, uh, Craig Bierko in that role is hilarious, I think. As the, uh, he's the, really the funny photographer? Funny. He's really yeah. funny. There, there are a lot of good cameos in this movie, for for sure. Like, oh, is, yeah. is, is, for for sure. Yeah, that was... is, but especially, like, I was super, <laughs> I was mostly bored watching this movie. And, I'll, I mean, I'll give you an example of how bored I was, like, you know, speaking of cameos. Christopher Maloney shows up in this movie as a openly gay uh, concierge at the Flamingo Hotel. And he's taking crap from like an older, you know, couple and saying like, like you know, derogatory cop. homophobic language. To, yeah, like a bigoted cop. And I, I sat here and I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm going, wouldn't it be funny if that was actually his same character from Wet Hot American Summer? But before <laughs> he went to Vietnam. And so like and then they like pardoned him like oh, full yes. metal jacket style and that's why he comes back like so sexually confused and like comes <laughs> the fridge and what out american summer like that's the kind of shit that's going through my head watching this Being movie because movie i movie, right. i couldn't just yeah I, exactly and and uh you know to complete my thought we got off of about inherent bias the only thing i wanted to say is like the doc character in that movie is similar except that's only a texture of his character and it in a bigger entertaining detective story. And all this movie is about is like the lost American dream that's coming to an end for this, the Hunter S Thompson proxy in the movie. Well, well, but well, if you take uh, out all of those, uh, you know, you get the, the symbolism of the American flag and like, it's all in your face, of course. 
uh, and uh, the, the kind of culture clash between the, the kind of like right-wing uh, silent majority Nixon people and the, the hip and cool drugged out uh, like kind of gonzo uh, people that, that Huntress Thompson is just like kind of in between and trying to like mediate these two worlds because he's he's also like kind of like a pro gun like like a gun nut psycho and then in many ways like he had he had some qualities that were like very right wing as well and um but but if you if you take out all of those like the voiceovers that i'm talking about that that seem kind of like crammed in there to give the film some kind of subtext it's basically about two assholes uh yep. just <laughs> wreaking havoc in Las it's Vegas. It's the hangover, dude. <laughs> it's basically yeah, I mean it's like an art house version of the hangover and it's just like it's a, no, yeah. no matter how much like uh meaning you try to like pump in there, I feel like I never really really get into it. Like I just get into the manic energy of it, which is exhausting after a while. Like I really love the uh from the first time I watched this movie, I've I've seen it like uh I think 3 4 times already and I feel like every time I watch it before I watch it, I get a little bit excited because I'm just like, oh, it's going to be, you know, I, I just get excited for like that that kind of like go for broke manic energy that the film has. And I, I feel like it's, it's just going to like take me on a ride with it. And every single time I forget how exhausting this movie really is, because the, the first the first like the first time I watched it and this happens to me pretty much every time I watch it. It's like the first 10 minutes, like in the desert, where it's just like the 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 intense like fast voiceover and the inner monologue mixed with like what they're talking and the sound design and the 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 incredibly close weird angles and you get in there and you're just like oh my god this is like so like the the manic energy the the insanity of johnny depp's performance and how how crazy everything is and then that scene ends and then you start realizing that wait a minute the rest of the movie is going to be exactly like this yeah, like it's gonna, gonna be you're, going. you're in this for another two hours. Like it's not like, <laughs> like, and then that kind of dread sets it every time I watch this movie, and I'm just like, and I've never been able to watch this movie from beginning to end in one sitting. It almost yeah. takes me like at least like like this time around, it took me three uh, attempts over two days to to get through it because it's like you run out of gas after about twenty twenty five minutes of the same thing. Uh, it would have been interesting, and the the underrated movie that we're going to talk about does an excellent job of basically of the build up towards insanity. Uh, totally. But this is a movie that starts at eleven and ends at eleven. It starts at insane, yeah, but, yeah. goes through the same flat line levels of insanity and ends, and that's just as to me that becomes just as boring as a movie that just like it starts in the middle and ends in the middle. You know, it's just like you still have a flat line. It doesn't matter where the line is. It's it it might be at eleven, twelve. Like you're just like cranking it up, but at the same, after a while, you're just gonna get overwhelmed. You're gonna be exhausted. You're gonna be like, okay, I'm just gonna shut this shit off now. And that's that's what <laughs> happens to me every time I watch this. I mean, I I really appreciate it's monotonous. Yeah. it is. It's it's monotonous and episodic. And you know, it's like it, that's what that's how I feel. Like I really love the energy of it. But yeah, it does represent to me like the beginning of the end for like quality Gilliam films. So it's a bit mm. of a like double edged sword in that sense, I guess. It's kind of like the things that make this a, like a good drug movie where I can see why some people really, there is a cult to this movie fear and loathing in, in Las Vegas is, is also what makes it exhausting because it's such a relentless uh, attempt to, can, to just capture a, 
one of the most insane binges ever captured, you know, and because it's so true to the text and wants to, and in a way I respect it for being like true to its source is also gets you into the problem where it's, it's like, now we look at it and it's like, yeah, these guys, these are guys are just assholes. Like Mm -hmm. Hunter S Thompson is a hero in some ways, like a, a great writer. He created a whole form of journalism. That's super exciting, but it's also like the characters in the story we're watching, they're assholes. So Mm -hmm. like, it's uh it's this weird thing where because it is so close to the source that there's there's not enough of like a it came it took so long for this movie to be get made from mm-hmm. the source that it's like i don't know you almost it doesn't feel like there's an i mean it's like I, it's that weird thing it's that push and pull and it started with like jack nicholson was supposed to be right like, that's how oh, far that, back it goes um, right the list of people it was going to be like him and um marlon brando i heard were yeah, going to be in it it was at, but like, at one point it was going to be uh john belushi and dan Aykroyd. i would have right? killed to see that that would have been interesting yeah exactly so he's it took so long for this thing to come to fruition. It's like it's a, it's like both. I respect it for staying true. It's honestly, this is a movie that hasn't really come out yet, but it's it's a similar issue I have with Ben Wheatley's new movie High Rises. From what I understand, it's very accurate to the text that it's adapted from, but like, it also doesn't necessarily work as a movie for me in the same reasons. Where it's like, well, whether you're familiar with it or not, like it's not a great movie. It's just, maybe it's just a really faithful adaptation and that's enough for some people. But in this, in this case, this movie is just relentless and gets exhausting after a while. We'll, we'll have to revisit high rise uh, after I see it this weekend and uh, talk about <laughs> that. But, uh, but I'm glad you brought up the, you know, the drug movie angle that people seem to like really latch onto about this being like a crazy drug movie because Whenever I've said that I don't like this movie, uh, almost every response I've gotten back, people sound like Jon Stewart from Half Baked. They're like, you ever seen a back of a $20 bill on weed? Like, everyone says, like, you have to, if I say I don't Did like you see a moonlight on weed? On weed? They're like, you, you either have to watch it high. I, I've also <laughs> been told by somebody it makes more sense high. And I was like, well, yeah, so does the room. Yeah, but that doesn't, doesn't mean that anything. it's a good movie. <laughs> right. And like to me, that's a terrible argument to say. If something has to be viewed high for it to either make sense or be good, then it's not a good movie. Like you, yes, Eric, exactly. you wrote this great piece at uh, Oregon Dart Watch recently about your screening of Baraka in seventy millimeter, and you talked mm-hmm. about how it might be the most perfect weed movie. But you also capped that article off by saying this is a great movie, Regardless. stoned or sober. Mm-hmm. And yes. a great movie is going to function on both levels. And so for someone to say that this movie only works high, it's a shitty argument. Like, it's a bad argument. And it makes me feel better about my position on this movie. Because I think deep down, like, especially early, like, you know, when you're studying film and, like, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of ego and there's a lot of pretension from people. And it's like you don't want to, like, you're deeply insecure and you don't want to sound dumb about something at, at first. And so you're like. I'm like, I'm missing something. I must be missing something about this movie that everyone seems to be, uh, you know, raving about. And it's, now it's I okay just, that you're I, in a I safe place. That yeah. Well, I know I'm <laughs> in a safe hug, place and I, I'm at that point in my life where I'm, I'm, you know, I'm confident with the knowledge that I know and the things that I know and know what I'm talking about to where I'm like, I just don't like this movie. And that's fine. And that's <laughs> yeah, fine that exactly. people do. It's just, it's just, to me, it's, you know, it, it's got all those ideas. Like you said, it's got voiceover, you know, shoehorning it in to give it meaning. But, you know, it, it's just all about the crazy ride of a drug binge. Um, and you're really on board it and you're not. And I just am not. Whereas our underrated movie, like 
totally am 100% on board with that. Yeah, the yeah. so that might be a good spot to like start switching. Uh, I just yeah, wanna, I think so, uh, unless you yeah. guys have any... Thing to say, uh, you so, know, to close the chapter on fear and loathing. Yeah, so I want to, I want to just quickly uh, just go into a little bit more about what it could have been and uh, about like what what Eric said about it being really loyal to the text and how a lot of people around that, you know, after the film came out and the talks of a movie adaptation were were going around and a lot of people were saying like, you yeah, know, this is kind of impossible to adapt into a film because it, that's this is exactly what's going to happen. It's just going to start crazy and be crazy and end crazy there's not going to be any highs or highs and lows and it's just going to be exhausting and that's exactly what happened what could have been interesting is if um uh you guys all know who ralph bakshi is right mm-hmm. yep the so, animator yeah the yep. animator fritz the cat uh american pop uh wizards wizards uh lord of the rings the animated movie uh yep. so he he wanted to make an animated version of it and he was determined and i'm hundred percent on his side he was determined that the only way you could adapt this material was a cartoon and he wanted yeah. to make the cartoon in the in the ralph stedman drawing style like he oh, wanted to basically bring oh. those bring those you know there's the the fear and loading book has has these like really uh bizarre uh like very exaggerated drawings by ralph stedman um they're great uh, and they're, they're great yeah and, and he he wanted to just basically take those drawings and animate them and like like just basically bring them to life and make that movie that way and he thought that, that was the only scene, way dude. and he yeah. he thought that um and you know of course hunter s thompson being an insane person he gave the rights to uh, a girl who was like some girl that was like his girlfriend at the time and the girlfriend was just like no i want johnny depp in this movie um and yeah R- ralph bakshi's like last words on the matter were basically like look if you make this a live action thing it's just going to end up being this annoying live action cartoon and then apparently he went and saw the movie when it came out and he was just like yep that's exactly what i said it would be (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's on point i think that would have been cool uh so there was i feel like yes maybe it is unfilmable in a way but I, i feel like a cartoon with in that kind of like uh really exaggerated uh raw style of the drawings would have been could have been mm-hmm. interesting maybe at like an hour and 15 minutes or so just like get in and out right because it, w- it would still start off at the at like a top setting of insanity and end that way but you know you watch like fritz the cat and all that stuff and it's like mm-hmm. uh it's there, there are at you know ralph ralph bakshi is like an episodic kind of animated filmmaker and he does like you know dabble in that kind of style so that could have been I feel like that could have been really cool, but what we get well, here is kind of a mess. You also bring up another good point: is that yeah, this movie's just too long. Even at two hours, it's just yes. it's just too long. And if if I have one final thing, it's like actually a bit of appreciation, but still, uh, is uh, uh, Benicio del Toro is like one of my favorites. I I adore him. He's one of my favorite actors, and even he can't like save this movie. If not that it needs saving, he's great in it, and I think he's better than Depp and. I actually think Johnny Depp is pretty pretty awesome in this movie. It's just it is a sort of early sign of what's to come in a much worse form, much like what's going on with Gilliam and Tim Burton as a filmmaker as well. But in, really, in hindsight, really Gilliam. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. yeah it's just, in, um, in hindsight, his yeah. performance is a lot more annoying now because of like like when it first came out, we didn't know what it was going to lead to. 
and right. now we know and now i watch oh, it i'm just like Ugh, like shades of, and, yeah you see yeah. shades of like Willy yeah, Wonka the and mad hatter and jack sparrow yeah, you know, and all just that. just just bad stuff but yeah i give you del toro man so he's he's committed and like, he put and on a shitload of weight for yeah. this movie <laughs> he gained like 50 <laughs> pounds in like eight weeks or some crazy thing um he has a good story i think it was on the Mar- mark Marin podcast when he was on there or that or fresh air but um uh, he talks about how he just like ate the the diet he ate. Like he said, he essentially had like a great time eating the food he ate, but you know, it's like not good for him. Uh, but yeah, no, I love it. He's, he's committed, but also not like a bullshit phony method. Like he, he doesn't do that for show. He's just like, I don't know. Del Toro's the best, but he can't save this movie. It's, 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 it's pretty tiresome. So yeah, no, yeah. No great too weird to live, much too rare to die. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> nice. Perfect. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, are we guys? Are we ready to move on to our underrated pick? Let's go. Let's go to the Yaba. Uh, Let's do go it. To Yabba. Uh, all right. Uh, I can't do an Australian accent. Um, so, our underrated uh, movie, uh, Ryan's underrated pick, is another "Let's get fucked up and get lost in the desert" movie. This one, um, I would say, uh, you know, every once in a while, there are one of the, some one of those movies where everybody says how amazing it is and then you kind of like put it off for no reason whatsoever and then you finally watch it and realize how great it is and then you feel like an asshole for putting it off for so long (laughs) for waiting so yeah this is one of those for me uh so it is um 1971's wake and fright directed by ted kajif the proud director of uh uh the the only reasonable rambo movie uh first blood first blood and also recent director of a handful of a bunch of law and order special victims units uh unit uh episodes uh, oh nice he's still working nice yeah he's still doing a lot of tv stuff uh and i i actually like had a meeting with him so i'll i'll, I'll get into that if you guys want uh, a little bit Ooh. uh yeah i had a, i had a big like uh big like meeting with him in la it was so big it was like between his like lunch and whatever like it just he it was just like a five minute thing uh but yeah i'll I'll, i can get into that but um yeah it is wake and fright uh 1971 uh about uh starring the great donald pleasance and uh the main guy's name is gary bond who plays uh uh, plays got john grant a uh a school teacher stuck in the middle of nowhere and trying to like basically make time pass by getting shit-faced and he needs to go to sydney to see his girlfriend uh but gets stuck in this like this mining town from hell is the uh easiest like it's this place is like a living nightmare basically full of alcoholics for him him, at least yeah uh but yeah and and uh he gets stuck in there and things become he just basically slowly starts losing his mind through the lovely help of alcohol why did you say that i want about them being proud of hell. Discontent is a luxury of the well-to-do. You gotta live here, and you might as well like it. Why don't you like Crawford? Joe? The touch of his hairy hand offended I'm a fool with it, the aggressive hospitality, the arrogance of stupid people who insist you should be as stupid as they are. It's death to farm out here. It's worse than death in the mines. Do you want them to sing opera as well? And what do you do? I drink. 
so uh, Ryan, uh, I think this is kind of an obvious question, but why did you take pick Wake and Fright as your underrated? Well, even though this movie has a lot of critical acclaim, more so, way more so than Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, uh, it was lost for a very long time after it came out in 1971. It was sort of like one of those lost, hidden gems, you know, no, it, by legend, uh, one of Australia's best films. You know, people put it up there with Mad Max and Walkabout, but it was never... You could never find the movie anywhere until 2012, I believe. Uh, Drafthouse Films unearthed it, or, or somebody was able to restore a print of it, and Drafthouse Films picked it up and well, the redistributed D- was it. Was it the DP and- or the editor who was trying to track it down, and he found uh, the negative in, uh, like, uh, somewhere in, a, in like, mid the Midwest, uh, where... Uh, it was like it was going to be destroyed and then he saved it and restored it basically that was like nice the yep it was the editor anthony buckley the film yes. editor found it in pittsburgh. uh in pittsburgh yeah and it was yeah it was like you said it was gonna be destroyed and you know they were able to restore the film from that print and that was the you know the dcp i unfortunately did not see in the theater but i believe eric did uh, yes. i saw dcp of it um and then you know which draft house films later released on a dvd and blu-ray i have the dvd and it looks pretty great um so this movie even though it's got a claim even though draft house films which is you know a great distribution company and they you know cater to people like us but they're they do preach the converted a little bit and i feel like this movie um you know even out, like outside of the circle of people who are already ready to embrace it not a lot of people have heard of it not a lot of people have seen it i could also see when the movie is on Netflix, the the poster that they used for the re-release is, is him with a gun, you know, kind of wandering, mm. and, and you might think that it's going to be like a revenge movie, like a death angle. wish. Yeah, it's like an exploitation. Yeah, angle. yeah, yeah. You like, think yeah. that it's going to be like the Australian version of Death Wish, and it's it's not that at all. And I could see where someone might be uh, misled, but I think the film that that uh, Ted Ketchoff made. Um, is fucking great. I I absolutely love this movie. I actually had seen it twice in the last two weeks. I watched it before picking it as an underrated movie because I hadn't seen it uh, in a while. And then I loved it so much that I just rewatched it two nights ago in preparation for this podcast. And Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas uh, to me is a is a a visual movie, but it's but it's not a visceral movie. Like I'm never sucked into it. Whereas like this is an absolute visceral movie with an actual character like like you know not a caricature but an actual character that you you know you sit here and you agonize over the the nightmare that he's having and the hell that he is going through but you also understand and you see a lot of you could see a lot of yourself in this performance and i think that is off-putting for some people because people don't want to be in that headspace and they don't want to think about that but um and i guess the other thing you know comparing this with fear and loathing um you know i've never been on the type of drugs that makes you imagine the shit that hunter s thompson <laughs> did in that movie right. so maybe i just can't relate but like you but haven't I've seen lizards in a bar <laughs> no no but i've been i've been blackout drunk and i'm sure all three of us here have been at some point yes. and this movie there's one scene that like completely captures the feeling of being blackout <laughs> drunk it's just the way that the camera is spinning and the way it cuts to black and then cuts to a snippet of an image and then cuts to black and then cuts to a snippet of an image. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. And, and I also think that like this movie, 
you know, you get the feeling at the end of Fear and Loathing that Hunter S. Thompson or Ral Duke anyway, like he's fine. He's driving back to California. He's going to be OK. We don't see that in John Grant in this movie. Like the, <laughs> the ending to me is like it, it's weird that he, you know, he's he's trying to see his girlfriend in Sydney, yeah. as you mentioned. And but you never get the sense that you never really get the sense that he either wants to make it there or she even knows he's coming because at one point, yeah, he he's doesn't try to get in the, touch with he, her, or she doesn't try to call yeah, him, or you don't. Well, he was asked to because he, lose, yeah. he loses all his money gambling, and and the person who kind of takes him in asks, like, "Is there anybody you could call in Sydney?" And he's like, "No, there's nobody I can call." But it's like, you yeah, know, if she if you could call her, but but or does she you know, exist, There's got to be really? something. <laughs> does she even exist? Is a question. Um, are they estranged? You know, because it's like he's this. He's this college graduate, uh, but not of privilege, who wanted to become a teacher. And the only job that he could find is in this little podunk town of Taboonda that apparently only has two buildings, a school and a bar slash hotel. And he's stuck because he has like a deposit to the uh, uh, government. And the reason he actually loses all his money to gambling is because he gets greedy because he thinks he can he makes like a. a bunch of money but then he's just like if i do like double or nothing then i can like get out of my contract and leave this like shitty school teaching job and that's what like does him in basically mm-hmm. exactly but and, and it just doesn't work out for him and you just and you just feel like you know i, I know a lot of uh podcasts have talked about uh green room lately uh because that movie's out and you know talking to you know talk about son jeremy sonny's previous film blue ruin of that it's just the cycle that's going to keep yeah. going for this character mm-hmm. like it's just gonna it's never gonna end for yeah, him. yeah the and very ending basically it's makes pretty... it clear that like no lessons have been learned and that's yeah, that's basically it's, it's the, a d- the cycle of the alcoholic in many ways it is and it's a dark ending but this movie despite how fatalistic it is it's fucking entertaining so like agreed. from beginning to end it's so entertaining there's entertaining performances and we have to talk about donald pleasance yes, in this yes. movie who's just incredible but before we get to that i've talked a lot i, I want to know what you guys think of this movie and i'm pretty sure i already know but you know i'd like to hear your thoughts yeah so eric uh, chug your pint and dive in man <laughs> I already finished it. Um, that Ryan did a great job of talking about how uh, a specific sequence. Uh, I think you're talking about um, where they represent like that what it's like to black out. Like at least the moments you remember when that happens is when they're partying at that guy's house. Ryan, is that mm-hmm. the sequence yes. you're referring to? Yep. Okay, yeah, they're like yes. decorating a Christmas tree and yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. with with the tab with the tabs from all the fucking beer cans they've been drinking. Yeah, um, and that's the way time progresses in these moments of time. It's like it that that is a really that is this movie does a lot of things very well that's one of them another thing that this movie sort of overall gets at to me that i love that it i think it does better than any other movie honestly that i've ever seen um is this movie nails the feeling of what it's like to be partying with people that are just on a whole other level than you will ever be where it's like you realize you are outmanned outgunned like these people like to party way more harder, harder than you. And I think that's that's only one element of this movie, but it's kind of the one I love because um, there are these other sequences too during these binge drinking, you know, which is most of the narrative while he's stuck in the Yabba is, uh, for instance, there's this really horrific and real, uh, that's why it's horrific, um, kangaroo-like uh, mm-hmm. hunt, hunt that actually happened and they filmed it and... It's while these guys are just partying and just killing everything. It's just laying waste to the land. But then they go back to the bar 
again, like at the end of the night, they've already been out twice, like driving around, you know, drinking and killing kangaroos. They go back to this bar and it is, I think, and these are big words, but I think this is one of the best like drug, whatever you want to call it, substance abuse movies, because the sequence nails where they're these two brutish kind of uh, local guys and Donald Pleasance just start basically fighting and destroying this whole porch of this bar. Like Donald Pleasance is like uh yelling in a way and you guys know the sequence i'm talking it becomes about right guttural it becomes oh, yeah. like animalistic they they oh turn into God. animals basically and it's okay yes it is and that's why i actually think it's hilarious i think it's one of the funniest scenes in a movie about this but yet this movie straddles this line the entire time like it's like a movie that it's fun that you bring up green room in a way ryan because it's a fellow movie where like the shit hits the fan for very different reasons. But Wake and Fright is another movie where like the shit just hits the fan at a certain point. And you're watching just unrelenting like douchebaggery, but in a way that's actually entertaining because we're never led to believe that these are heroes of a story, mm-hmm. which is ultimately the a problem I have with a lot of like drug and party movies like the aforementioned hangover or even fear and loathing in Las Vegas is you're supposed to kind of be on board with those guys in some way. But what I love about wake and fright is it has the artistic sense, the strong sensibility to know that these guys are not really heroes, but they're the people you're going to watch nonetheless because they're fucking entertaining. But like, it's it's entertaining, it's funny, but yet the spiral they go in is just so like depressingly fully realized. And um, I adore this movie too. I, I would say that we do a pretty good job, I'd say, so far in the existence of this podcast of championing like 1970s gems, not just mm-hmm. American-made movies, but it's definitely a thing we've all chosen movies like this, like Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia and The Friends of Eddie Coyle, stuff like that. Like This is just another one, and this is, um, honestly, the more I watch Wake and Fright, I really think this is like one of the great, great movies. I really love it. So I will... Too, uh, and it toes that line even further uh, from that scene between the comic and the tragic, like you were talking about, because that scene is hilarious, but then it's like, it goes one step further, and like, yep. you're like, did, like, did they bang? Like, yeah, know, yeah. That, that, they go back to the house, and like, and is we should talk about. Yeah, that. but it's totally, but it's totally, you know, definitely the way they relate to, to each other in the morning. The way they relate to each other in the morning and the awkwardness of it is 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 a little bit like. Suspect. I think it's they do. Weird, yeah. I think yeah. You're talking, I think they do. Or, or Donald Pleasance maybe rapes him or something. Like the way that they're. I, I think they of... got fucked up and fooled around, man. I yeah, think they maybe. got fooled around. And, yeah. and that's why that's why there's this awkward homoerotic tension between them at the end of the movie. Like, yes. I, I really think, and that just adds another level of like, it's not like it's saying that like, oh my God. Um, okay, here's it's, a- It's not a, sensationalist about it. It's not like, oh, look at these guys. Well, like, fucked, okay, you know? right. When the movie Shame came out, the Michael Fassbender, Steve mm-hmm. McQueen directed yeah. movie, there's a sequence where people, some people were offended. I, I remember because um, there's a point where it's like kind of portraying him hitting bottom as a sex addict. And one of it is that one of the sequences in that is that like he goes to a, a male, um, a gay club and just pays a guy to like, you know, to blow him. But I don't, you know, it's, it's, it, it's all how you read it. But like um, the point I'm making is that it's like um, in wake and fray. I just think it's, it's just, it's it's not making it like sensational, like, oh, my God, these two guys like fooled around and how terrible like look how the movie's not saying like, look how low he went. It's just like it's just another crazy thing that happened. And that's why I think it's sort of matter of fact 
it's matter of fact and also ambiguous the way they play with it. But it's like another element of like, just look at the, it's more of like the arc that he goes on. It doesn't have to necessarily teach a lesson or make a point. It's just like, you wa- you watched a fucking movie when you watch Wake and Fright. Like, you saw an arc in a character. Well, there's and, actual um, ups and downs, and there's an arc, there's a progression, oh God, there's yeah. a structure. All of Such those things that are missing play. from Fear and Loathing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Wake and Fright and, is and the totally... rare, rare drinking, rare getting fucked up movie where there is a really strong structure, and, like, it's everything is, like, in tune with the editing and the filmmaking. Just like even you could say Fear and Loathing, like, the filmmaking is, like, supposed to attune you to the style of being fucked up. But, like, Wake and Fright is actually well thought out in the script stage. And, like, it's ah, it's such a good movie. Well, well, well Eric, Eric, you said that, you know, like, there are some, even though it is kind of depressing and crazy, there are some entertaining parts in it. And, and, and I feel like doesn't it kind of follow the trajectory of getting blackout drunks like yes. like the, there are yes. sections where it is fun and it is crazy and entertaining and as as batshit crazy as they become and then like you, you know you go through those periods and then you drink way too much and then it becomes kind of confusing yep. and crazy and then the next morning comes and you get the hangover and it's just depressing and sad and the, Octave, it, it this was the point i was always trying to make yeah. I'm sorry. This is the point I was always trying to make about Spring Breakers. Like, I'm not saying that it's it's a one to one like there. It's so similar to Wake and Fright, but it's a similar point I was trying to make of like that movie follows the Spring Break trajectory, and that's the ups and downs of the narrative that it has. And Wake and Fright, in its way of being a drink, a, like a you know, it's be, it's a binge movie. It's a booze binge movie. It it does follow that and. That's that's all. That was sort of the point I was always trying to make about mm-hmm. Spring Breakers. What I liked about it in the same way is that like the form and the content, everything was sort of it's this perfect sort of cyclical relationship, you know, and it's that's that's why I love the movie so much is like those are my favorite kind of movies like it, it's it, it is all these things like it, we've kind of already got at it. But um, it, you have to say like how complex this movie actually is too. Mm-hmm. like it's 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 crazy entertaining. We've we've noted that. But also. I love how complex this movie is because Octa, you described Wake and Fright as like sort of a living nightmare for the for the the lead character, but he's the asshole. You know what I mean? Like it's mm-hmm. Ryan sort of pointed out, like you know, for him it's a nightmare, but some people love the Yabba, you know. And I love that that the movie's mm-hmm. balanced. Like the characters aren't buffoonish like freaks. They might seem that way, or you in a lesser movie, but well, here Donald, I actually Donald Pleasance's character definitely enjoys his kind of out there he's, uh animals he's fascinating because yeah because he's a he's an alcoholic he knows he's an alcoholic and he chooses to live in this place because people don't notice that he's an alcoholic because he just fits in that's such a fascinating <laughs> yeah. idea that's why he's such a like a brilliant character like tell me another character that exists like that like that's an original movie character and donald pleasance does you you i'm so glad you brought it well, up well already. a movie that i'm like, gonna he, um, yeah i'm gonna compare it to is uh is lost weekend that's another character mm. the ray milan character in the lost weekend is like billy wilder um, movie, yeah billy wilder movie have you guys have any of you either of you seen i need that? to see it i need it's, to see it's it it's great it's gonna be it. on well we're gonna it's gonna be on one of the episodes uh soon Good. for sure it's it's definitely on my list uh let, let's go through another couple of like you know some other movies before we get back into the uh issue of addiction but you know uh but yeah this is this is the movie that like reminded me the most of the last weekend especially in the way that it perfectly brings you into the mind of an addict which is not really particularly where you want to be and this is one of those movies waking fright is definitely like a film that i can imagine myself watching 
again maybe because it's not about a writer so i don't feel that kind of intense physical intense personal connection to it uh mm-hmm. lost in the last weekend is basically uh a masterpiece that i never i kind of never want to watch again <laughs> it's <laughs> it's that it's it gets that intense and personal about like the the cycle the never-ending cycle of alcoholism and it's an incredibly depressing and incredibly sad movie and in that ray milan's character who's kind of like a like a failed uh writer who was like kind of hot shit when he was young and then he kind of like gave it all up and now he can't even you know, he just basically binge drinks to till he dies. Uh, and he's kind of like that kind of character who's just like completely self-aware of where he is and what he is and how hopeless his life is and uh, kind of just like powers through it and unapologetically. And uh, Donald Presence's character reminded me of that and, and Waking Fright in a way that like uh, goes hand in hand with The Lost Weekend in the way that it captures that that cycle perfectly. Like the ending is... Uh, Billy Wilder has an ending very similar to um, to Wake and Fright, uh, but it's a lot more subtle. You think like everything's like, oh yeah, it's a new chapter, and then you, you realize that he's basically ending his movie exactly in the same way that he began it, and you're like, oh no, this is just a cycle. So you, you get the same kind of thing. Uh, so yeah, if there's you're... a movie from last year, uh, Heaven Knows What had a very similar, yes, like yes. accurate cyclical sort of ending mm-hmm. to its you know drug addiction story, and it it really is you know kind of the only true way you can end a story like this. And I think you're yeah you're right to bring up these other examples because I I think Wake and Fright though it's a lot lesser known is oh, yeah. like should belong in the conversation. I mean, with last those weekend movies. was a Best Picture winner. It doesn't get mentioned oh, like man. nearly as Damn. much, but you know it's. Uh... Uh, but yeah, I mean, and another thing that I really I want to bring up that uh, I want to hear you guys' thoughts about it. I don't know if you like if you thought about it while you were watching it uh, about the the many layers of this film. Uh, it's like uh, this film is kind of like an onion, as uh, Shrek would say. Uh, mm-hmm. There are many layers. Layers you just like peel them off, and uh, the you know the top layer is that this is you can watch this movie and enjoy it as like this like unique waking nightmare kind of experience and then the other layer is this like uh thematic study of the cyclical nature of addiction alcoholism and then there's another layer about how basically the the colonial forces in australia are the real savages uh so about like how much how much death and destruction and ugliness that the white people have brought to these lands i mean there's a reason why uh, none of the people who act like crazy assholes are aborigines. Uh, it's yep. uh, and and they go out there and the you know you, you get the text at the end of the movie that says like yes these the kangaroo uh, hunting scene was real it was shot while you know these hunters were hunting for kangaroo but it also says that you know we thought it was important to show that how destructive that the kangaroo hunting was to the so this is a film that's like very aware of how the the colonial the colonialism in Australia and how the white people basically who go into these lands uh, may be, you know, it can be Australia, America, wherever you want to think about Africa, um, and just basically uh, bring the guys, bring in the guys of civilization, but actually act like the real savages. Uh, right. And I think the, the, that's why like it, it, it strikes me as like a very deliberate choice that when you, when you mentioned Eric and I noticed in the film, when they, when they get off, go off the deep end and they basically start fighting each other and making all these guttural sounds that <laughs> yeah. make them sound like more animalistic than the kangaroos that they're shooting. The kangaroos just oh. 
basically just keep to themselves and they don't attack, they don't do anything, and they go they go out there and they start like they bru- there's this like violent stabbing scene of a kangaroo and, and well just, yeah there is the one yeah. fighting kangaroo that is credited there is the one fighting kangaroo yeah I guess that scene that yeah. scene is amazing by the way yeah, I'm sorry yeah. to, it's it's crazy sorry to cut you and it's it's it shows it's, like it's hard to watch the, it but yeah. it's 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 a great scene yeah it's it's because it's so real it's like I I'm both in awe that that much like danger can be felt in a movie, you know, still like it's, it's good to be reminded of that, but also it makes me wince. Cause I'm like, Oh, those are actual kangaroos. Like, so, yeah, so, so did you guys pick up cringe. on that? What do you guys think about the idea? of Commentary about like colonialism and white people's destruction of Australia, basically. I was just say I was, I, I did not think of that. That's an, the fascinating angle. I did not like make that connection, but that's, that's definitely something that's there. I also think that's yeah I, Octa, I love what you're saying because I think there's a real reason that like um I've never read about it but this actor Gary Bond that plays the lead character to me is like a dead ringer he looks like Lawrence of Arabia era Peter O'Toole mm-hmm. like at a glance, he's like his doppelganger and I think there's a real reason that you cast a guy that looks like maybe the most iconic British actor, one of the most. And mm-hmm. he's this British character in this world. And I think it feeds into what you're talking about, Octave, the colonialist aspect of this movie or the subtext, because he's stuck in the middle of nowhere and he doesn't want to be there. That's what at this point, modern day Brits would feel, you know, but there's this like, you see this cycle of, or the pattern of like what's happened to this land because of that through all the years. And when you have an actual Brit as your lead, he's this like Peter O'Toole looking bastard, but he's kind of a piece of shit and hates where he is. (laughs) He's stuck in this cycle with these people that have been bred in this area. Actually, they're a part of this country or like the Donald Pleasance character. They actively want to be there because their debauchery can exist there. And that is a very deep and cutting comment on that. I'm with you, man. And I think it adds it there. This is a movie of layers. It's, it's another factor of like what I was trying to get at of like how these guys aren't all bad guys. Like they're kind of just nice local guys that try a little too hard, but they're, they want to be nice to the John Grant character. They're all like, they take care of him. Mm-hmm. It's just, he's the problem. You know, it's like, the the he's not the hero but he's the protagonist of the movie and he doesn't act like a hero it's like he's the jerk i i like that aspect of this movie the easier route to make a movie like this is make those people the freaks and the douchebags and he's the guy that we're supposed to cheer for but he's not yet you know i just love that it's like for me that's another layer that also feeds into what you're ultimately saying octa which i think is really like spot on well it's, sure. it's, it's like that that uh u-turn scenario like talk about a bad uh oliver stone movie where it's like the the, the premise of <laughs> like a the straight man going into a town full of crazies and trying to get out of there and there's a bunch of movies made like that but yeah it, it kind of flips that on its head a little bit then you start realizing that that a lot of the people who live in this city are uh, somehow comfortable in their own skin, and he's the one yeah. who just like kind of get wants to get in there. He thinks he's better than everybody. He's, too, yeah, he you thinks know? he's better than everybody, and I feel like that's why that's part of why, and maybe part of like the homoerotic uh, aspects of it, maybe that he makes a decision to do something at the very end of the movie. That mm-hmm. is a, that's a little bit shocking, but at the same time, it makes sense when you watch it. You're just like, yeah. Well, I think the like- real I think the realization of what he may ha- or may not have done, it, I mean, it shatters his own personal world. I mean, yep. there's that great descent into madness. Another great textbook editing, you know, scene where he's running and he's envisioning like him having 
you know, intercourse with the other girl or at least attempted yeah. to. And then his yeah. girlfriend and then like his girlfriend with Donald Pleasance and this just mixture of just sexual confusion that ultimately <laughs> leads him to do something that that is that is like you said, Octa is incredibly shocking. Yeah, it's it's it, it almost goes into like it, it makes sense what he does because of like how it looks like he kind of envies Donald Presence's like effortless the effortless way he can just like let go of all inhibition. And <laughs> he wants to kind of and I think that's why he has that night with him and then the decision that he makes afterwards is almost like his last ditch attempt at any sense like leaving behind that craziness and any sense of normalcy. Uh, in right. a way, in a way that's almost like you know, like um, the narrator in Fight Club just shooting himself in the head and like getting rid of uh, <laughs> Tyler Durden, like that dark, right. dark part of yourself that he's just like desperate to get rid of, and which of there's course, that whole scene. Yeah. There's the, there's that whole scene with Donald Pleasance the first time he crashes at his house, yeah. where they wake up and Donald Pleasance is talking about the woman that. John Grant like had tried to sleep with, but he gets sick <laughs> before anything can happen. Um, he, you know, Donald Pleasance talks about all the like sexual escapades he's had with this woman. And like, he even says, he's like, we know ourselves like it's something to that effect. Like we've pushed ourselves to such a degree and tested our limits that we know ourselves better than anybody, I think is the, like the essential point, you know, I'm paraphrasing. And that is essentially the test that, the lead character goes through or that he puts him through, but he's like wants to go through. And it's really interesting to think about like, yeah, this is an alcoholic story, but one where you're like, I don't know. It's like, he's not a sad, pathetic one, at least not from the outset. I don't know. It's a, it's a very, it's a very complex movie. It is. Yeah. It's, it's, that it's, it is. It's, it's fucking it's, great. It's uh, it's definitely one that, uh, yeah, I feel like maybe the, 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 since Alamo Drafthouse uh, released or Drafthouse released it, um, since they also released a lot of like you know Lost, so bad it's good movies, um, like Miami yeah. Connection, and uh, recently like the, Dangerous Men and uh, The Visitor, yeah, The Visitor. The visitor. Yeah, people might get the idea that like this is one of those like you know early seventies like exploitation movie that got lost and it's gonna be like this so bad it's good kind of thing, but this is a genuinely yeah. great film. And yep. I, I would put it more in the category of like, I hear exploitation being brought up from time to time about this, but I would like move it so, I don't see it. I, I would move it so much further into the like, uh, the Australian New Age filmmaking of Nicholas Rogue and Peter Weir and mm-hmm. like those those types of movies, like those types of great films with with great substance and layers and like very like kind of progressive filmmaking. Uh, I would put it there. It's uh you know, it's kind of a sh- like I'm a, I'm a, I like first plot for what it is, but um, it's a bit of a shame that Ted Kotcheff never really, um, yeah, you know, made of, I, I don't think, I mean, as, as far like the fun with Dick and Jane and all that stuff, like uh, the films that he made that I've seen that it's nothing as good as this. So, um, it's it's uh yeah it's interesting so yeah I I, uh, I let, let me I'll, I'll just oh my these. god he did weekend at Bernie's yes. holy fuck that's <laughs> yes. embarrassing dude <laughs> that's that's bad that is bad so yeah let me North but Dallas he did wake 40. and fright <laughs> ooh ooh did he do that yeah yeah yep, he did yep. he, but but like you said Eric he did do wake and fright and yeah. it's that's a, it's that's a fantastic a good... movie and Octave pretty much hit it on the head what I would say this isn't like it it. It can fit in the exploitation movie, but I think it is so much, so much better than that. And it's a movie that, like I said, when it when it was re released, it's preaching to the converted. But I think that if I mean, if you love unique 
you know, unique movies and, and challenging movies and just downright entertaining movies. It's it's a great movie and you should seek it out. Yeah. So do you guys want to um, hear about my uh, the my brief meeting with uh, Ted Kotcheff in 2005? Sure. Oh, yeah. This will be a good way to cap this episode off. Yeah, Go I for guess it. that's true. I guess we we meant we, we went through uh, all of the all of the things that we were going to go get through. So, uh, yeah, uh, my our uh, acting teacher at the Academy of Art in San Francisco in 2005, like right at the year when I graduated from my uh, MFA program, uh, I wrote a couple of scenes for her acting class, and uh, she really loved those scenes. And she was like, "You're you're a really good writer, so let me take you to L.A. and uh, get you some general meetings with a, with a couple of people that could maybe help you out." So, and and a general meeting is basically like a, a, a meeting that you take as a writer. That's um, where you're not really talking about a specific project. You're basically just meeting up with producers and directors and shooting the shit about like, "Oh, what are you working on? What am I working on? Maybe you'll come up with something that's." interesting that they'll be like oh you know why don't you send me that script or something like that and uh it that happens about like one percent of the time usually you just like sit and like talk and you know that's it uh so i was like oh yeah that's you know it'll still be a cool like great experience i'll get some like general meetings and i went to um apparently the acting teacher uh her name was diane baker by the way and uh she was a pretty uh she was the uh um she was Marnie's no, not Marnie's sister. Sorry, Sean Connery's sister in Marnie, the the hmm. Hitchcock film, and she yeah, yeah. was uh, another big role that I oh she was the 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 mayor in uh, Silence of the Lambs, the mother of the uh, the girl that got uh, kidnapped. Right. Um, so you you guys might get like a mental image uh, from there, and so anyway, she she took me and her friend was an executive producer on Law and Order Special Victims Unit. So I, I went to the, uh, it was at the Universal lot, and I went into their, like, little office, and uh, he was just shooting the shit, hanging out with Ted Kotcheff, and I didn't know who he was, and uh, it turns out that he was going to be, like, you know, since he was just kind of hanging around talking about the next episode that he was going to direct, so he was just like, yeah, I'll stick around for the meeting, whatever, you know, we'll talk to this kid, and uh, he was he was the coolest guy. He was basically like, oh, your, your name sounds, uh, your last name sounds Bulgarian, do you have any, like you know, uh, Bulgarian, like, in your family, and I, I started talking about, like, you know, yeah, back when Turkey was the Ottoman Empire, you know, um, my father's side, a lot of people say that we come from, like, Bulgarian roots and stuff like that, so we talked about that, and we talked about, he, he told us, like, this, he, he told me this, like, insane story about, like, how he tried to uh, get Frank Langella to uh, do a part in one of the Law and Order episodes, and mm -hmm. Frank Langella kept telling him, like, I've played every single type of character that you can ever think of, and you can never come up with some kind of character that I've never done. And if you come up with that, I'll do your shitty show. And uh, apparently, like, one of the episodes, he came up with this, like, really insane, weird ca character that was in the episode, and he brought it to Frank Langella, and Frank Langella was like, all right, you got me. <laughs> <laughs> so he did, the, is, he did the episode, uh, and look it up, in uh, Law and Order SVU, he did one of the those episodes, and whatever that episode is, I guess that was the character that Frank Langella was like, yeah, I've never done a character like that. Um, yeah, and then he was just like, yeah, while we're shooting in New York, why don't you come up, if you come up to New York, you can, like, hang out at the set and stuff like that, and then he just left. So that's my that's my Ted Kotcheff story for you. And I had nice. no idea. I, I only knew I, I knew like who he was, but I knew him as the director of um, uh, first Weekend Blood, at Bernie's first blood. <laughs> yeah, I didn't I didn't bring up Weekend at Bernie's. I knew he directed that, too. But 
I was just All like, I think of is that Seinfeld episode where Elaine rents Weekend at Bernie's yeah. and she's just screaming at her TV the whole time. Anyway, I'm sorry. So I wish I wish That's that a- back then. Uh, I'm sure that he would have like really appreciated it too because nobody knew about that fucking movie. If right. I, if yeah. I had, if I had seen it somehow, but that was 2005, so it wasn't even like being. It was just about to be restored back then, I guess. But, that's what's uh, so cool what Drafthouse cool. does, right? Like, yeah, is true. like, like this guy that we knew, like, uh, if you were to look it up as I just did, and like, oh, here's the guy that made Weekend at Bernie's, a movie I had seen, and it's stupid. It, come on, it's a joke. But like, he made a ramp, you know, he made the first Rambo movie, and then, but like, he also made this great little '70s Australian movie. This, and yeah, that's that's the coolest thing about like what Drafthouse does is like unearthing and and other distributors like them, and it's like it's proof of like what an exciting time it is um, to be a movie fan when there's like this news of this streaming site filmstruck that's going to acquire all the criterion movies and all these, these, yeah, all these other libraries of other great distributors, you know, people like folks like draft house films that have been maintaining these movies like wake and fright and ensuring that they'll last. And it's not some scuzzy exploitation movie. It has elements of that, mm-hmm. but it's also not some like pretentious art house movie. It's this great marriage of the two. And, and, um, that's the, that's why people should seek it out is that it's like, it's, it's entertaining, but also like, you're going to get a full meal from this movie. It's, um, it's really something. And yeah, I love that. Like what a time that we're in where like movies like this are just like coming back and looking as good as they did when they were shown in, in their original release. Like it's, it's pretty rad. Yeah, that's gonna be awesome. We should we should seek out like a sponsorship deal with them. Yeah, <laughs> get 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 some free streaming uh, accounts. Oh my god, that'd be, that'd be that's sweet. a good idea. Yeah, because then we could pick a bunch of their movies. That's actually a good idea, man. Yeah, I'll, well, I'll see what Rod says. Yeah, let's get fucked up and call them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 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 all right. What do you guys should think? We wrap it up, uh, should we should we wrap it let's up? Wrap B? it up. Wrap it up. Wrap that shit up, B. So thank you for listening to another episode of Over Under Movies. Uh, I hope you had a good time, and I hope you will seek out Wake and Fright. And, you know, watch the first 10 minutes of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and, you know, kind of skip through and watch it in sections. There's some fun stuff in there. Um, uh, and the before we get to the end, uh, I do have some frightening news about next episode. Uh, I am already looking into... Um, the witness protection program uh it's gonna be rough um uh, the next episode are going to be my picks and i am picking basically we are going to be dickheads for the next episode because we're doing philip k dick adaptations nicely um, and i am picking for underrated uh richard linklater's uh rotoscope animation uh, Philip K. Dick adaptation, uh, a scanner darkly, and for the overrated, um, I'm gonna we're gonna do Blade Runner. So that's you this son is, of a bitch. This is this is <laughs> happening. Uh, it's gonna be my pick, and uh, yeah, we're probably gonna record the next episode in some kind of underground bunker somewhere. Uh, they can't uh, find for, us for, for, for protection. Yeah, you can't you can't find us. Don't even try. But we're gonna piss off a lot of fanboys. I have a feeling. At least I am. Uh, Octave's a replicant, with... you guys. It's it's. We should just say it right now. Octave's a replicant. And it'll All be right. this will be the one version we release of this episode. There will not be a final cut, a director's cut. It'll yeah, just yeah, that's be this that's one. gonna be it. There's not gonna be like five different fucking versions with with, with <laughs> tiny little alterations. Um, but Octave's a yeah. replicant. That is this version. <laughs> he's a replicant. 
Yeah. They exactly. Yeah, yes. And so, he's gonna be and he's gonna be doling over uh doling voiceover out throughout the episode. Yeah, so. like like really really boring monotone voiceover, like as if you really, really don't want to be there, which was the case for Harrison Ford. But uh but yeah, so uh that's gonna be, that's what you can look forward to next time. Uh so if you wanna catch up with those films, um go ahead and we're probably going to be talking i mean don't watch the theatrical version we're probably going to be talking about either the f- yeah. I-, I would recommend the final cut you know we'll, 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 we'll watch the final cut we might get into like some differences between the final and the director's cut but that's the one that we're we're going to talk about i would say what do you guys think like that, that sure. would be the yeah let's do the final cut. The preferred uh, version for me as well um so yeah if you want and there's only one version of scanner darkly because um, Richard Linklater's Later nowhere, knew nowhere near as anal as Ridley Scott is. <laughs> so that's going to be fun. Uh, look forward to that. So signing off, this is Octay Ege Kozak, film critic for The Playlist, The Oregon Herald, DVD Talk, and BayaSpreader.com. And I'm Eric McClanahan, film critic and podcast editor for The Playlist, and my other podcast is Adjust Your Tracking. I also write for Oregon Arts Watch. Signing off is Ryan Oliver, contributor here at The Playlist, and I co-host another podcast called Unspooled Real. And, of course, you can always find us on The Playlist, uh, about to be theplaylist.net, starting Monday. And uh, you can also find us on Twitter at OverUnderMovies and uh, Facebook.com slash OverUnderMovies and on our regular iTunes feed a couple days after it gets posted on the playlist. But for now, uh, have a great day. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode. Bye. find a wrapping up point i think okay let's do it what what (laughs) what about a wrapping up i just i just wanted to give you the final word because you know these are your picks i'm sorry sorry i did it oh no it's all good i i did my wrap up before octay's uh ted ketchoff story oh that's Uh, right i'm retarded never mind yeah yeah all right (laughs) wrap it up Uh, this this, this might this might make the blooper real we might have we we might have to do something like that um okay